Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu, a podcast about the fiber arts and other post-apocalyptic skills. Episode 260, Mary Beth and Other Goddesses, Wednesday, October 28th, 2020. I'm your host, Sarah. You can find me on social media as Sarah Pomegranate. Each time I record an episode, I post show notes, photographs, and links to things I talk about on my website, yarnsatyinhu.com. I also keep quite detailed notes about my knitting projects on Ravelry, and you can find me as Sarah Pomegranate there. This podcast is made possible through listener purchases of my knitting patterns, and I'm very grateful for your purchases and your enthusiasm about my designs. My most recent designs are from a little collection I'm doing over the course of a year, all based on ideas and concepts and characters in Clarissa Pinkola Estes' Women Who Run With the Wolves. Today's episode contains the following segments, the back porch, ever-expanding skill set, off the shelf, and so forth. Hello and welcome. It's quite early Wednesday morning around 6.15 I didn't expect to be recording an episode until the weekend. However, last evening around 9 p.m., we received word that due to locally reported cases, the health department was requiring the high school to close for several days. Um, That combined with the fact that all New Jersey schools are required to be on virtual instruction for election day, whether or not those schools are polling places. And the fact that the first weekend in November is a New Jersey teachers convention, so Thursday and Friday traditionally sees schools close. The administrators in my district decided that this closure would last until November 9th. And then close to that date, everything would be reevaluated and hopefully we would open back up to our hybrid instruction. So I've decided to use my commute time this morning to bring you an episode of Yarns at Ian Who podcast. I hope it brings a welcome diversion. It certainly brings me joy to tell you about what's been going on in my making life, and to hear from you about the episodes that um, bring you comfort, bring you things to think about, bring you ideas for your crafting. The back porch. I have completed a pair of toe-up socks using my very first sock yarn blank that was eco-printed by Maria Ninja Chickens. This 
sock blank was so much fun to knit up. I had a lot of apprehension about knitting a sock blank. And it turns out that my fears were completely unfounded. I was able to take several measures that prevented any sort of kinking of the sock yarn as I was knitting it. And using Blackthorn DPN needles, which have a lot of staying power in terms of the yarn staying in place as you're knitting, they made a lot of difference. The beautiful, extremely beautiful sky blue uh, color with occasional greens and oranges of the leaves was just really fun to work up. And these socks flew off my needles. They were my October socks and they were done this weekend. I knit them toe up, as I said, with some ribbing in the arch. And then at the top of the cuff, I played around with ribbing a little bit. I went from plain stockinette to a three by one rib. Then I shifted to a one by one rib and did a tubular bind off. And that got me thinking about socks and ribbing. And I immediately cast on another pair of socks, this time cuff down. And I'm using some yarn that I bought on a D-stash. I've been looking at D-stashes lately and purchasing some yarn that maybe I've had on my list from a certain dyer or I've wanted to try something. And lots of folks are looking to de-stash to get a little bit of cash that they really need during this time. So I think it's helpful to, you know, take a look if there's something that I want and if someone is making it available through de-stash to make that purchase. Of course, there's, you know, always the challenge that the yarn may not be as you expected, but in this case, um, the seller was very quick to respond, packaged everything up. This yarn was already caked, which is why it came at a pretty steep discount, but included the tag. Everything looked pristine, and I was really happy to get a skein of lichen and lace. It's an 80-20 blend in the sweet potato colorway, which is just it's so perfect. It has browns and oranges and little pops of luminous purple. It's just ideal for the fall season. It sings sweet potato. And I, I like this base. I think maybe some dyers who use this base sell it as a sport weight because it's only 300 and 50 yards or something like that, 364, something like that. And that kind of yardage is usually a sport base, not a sock base. But Lichen and Lace sells it as a sock base. And it does that thing where it knits up like really super beefy and strong, especially since I use US Zero needles. So I am just loving the fabric that this creates. And loving working on these socks. So 
With this pair, I'm beginning with a cuff and I am knitting them in tandem since the yarn was already so helpfully caked. I'm knitting from the inside and the outside of the cake and I began with a tubular cast on and then shifted that, converted it to a two by two rib, knit the cuff and then from there I shifted to a three by one rib and I've knit the leg of the sock. I have to be careful not to knit that leg too long because I don't want to run out of yarn for these socks. Um, knit the knit the leg in the three by one, and now I have just started the heel flap on one of the socks. So they're knitting up so quick. I'm enjoying the yarn so much. I would definitely purchase this yarn again, and they have some really beautiful colorways. I've heard about Lichen and Lace so many times, but I had never seen it in person and I had never been in a shop where there was the opportunity to buy it. So I was very fortunate to find this on a D-stash. I am also working happily on my Bressa sweater. So a f I think just after I released the previous episode, I was knitting the color work on the upper arms of this Bressa sweater designed by Marie Wallen. It has a color work yoke, tops of sleeves and chest, and then the remainder is in a salad color. So I was working to finish all of the color work and realized that despite all of my efforts to conserve yarn, be creative with my color choices, I was going to run several yards short of at least one of the colors. So I texted Mary Beth <laughs> because I know she has all of the colors of British breeds. Um, Marie Wallen's British Breeds yarn. And I asked her about these two colors and I asked if she would be willing to send her skeins to me so I could use what I needed and then send them back. And she put them in the mail the very next day. That Mary Beth. She's like a knitting goddess. So... By the next weekend, I had this yarn and I immediately completed all of the color work on my Bressa sweater. Now I have only the gorgeous solid mulberry body and sleeves to knit. And as I'm sure you can guess, there hasn't been much knitting since. <laughs> oh... Why is that color work so motivating, even though so much more difficult? And then when it gets to the single color, which should fly, it kind of comes to a halt. I don't know. But I am eager to have this sweater. So I think this week I will be making, you know, kind of another push to get going with the solid color. I think it will also be motivating for me to put the sleeves and body on 
uh, needles or holders so that I can really try the whole thing on again now that I've come this far and assess the fit. And I think once I feel really confident about that, then maybe that will be the motivation I need to keep working on the sweater. I am very pleased with the way the color work turned out. Um, this sweater was designed with spindrift yarns and I'm using Marie Wallen's British Breeds. So I needed to make color decisions on every one of, I think, I don't know, 10 or 12 colors. I'm very happy with my choices. I like the way the British Breeds is knitting up. And I'm also pleased with the fact that I followed Emily and knit this sweater um, from the neck down instead of from the bottom up. And that means reverse engineering all of the directions. So I've kept quite detailed notes about that on Ravelry if you're curious. I put my stitch counts in. I put uh, color selections in, I put everything in my notes in Ravelry. And when I link to things in Ravelry from my show notes, I indicate that the link takes the viewer to Ravelry in case you are sensitive to some of the deficits of Ravelry's um, layout and design and you are avoiding that site. So I do let my listeners know when the link is to Ravelry. That's all that's on my needles right now. I need to cast on the final installment of the Women Who Run With The Wolves collection. And I hope to do that very, very soon. Uh, but because I really want to make progress on the Bressa sweater, I am neglecting to cast on any additional projects that will divert my attention. Ever-expanding skill set. I thought I'd take some time this episode to talk about a question I received from Blisscat. That's Katrina from Oklahoma. She posted to the discussion thread for episode 258, Pick Apples, Not Enemies, and said that she has a question she's been meaning to ask me for years. That is, how do you store your recipes? Do you have a recipe journal? How often do you go back to it for inspiration? How often do you update your recipe storage, whatever system you use? I'd love to hear you talk about your organization style when it comes to your recipe favorites. Wow. Well, Katrina has no way of knowing this, but her line of questioning kind of touches a nerve because we have an ongoing conversation, Samuel and I, about the lack of organization in meal planning and meal making. So a frequent commentary while we're, you know, digging into something that I've made is, wow, this is delicious and we'll probably never have it again. Because all of the things that Katrina mentioned are things I 
don't really have a habit of doing. I have, I guess I get from my mother a very um, internal, unverbalized process of shopping, meal planning, and meal preparation. Um, it's, it's all in my head and that's why it's really inscrutable to other people. And all of that has come to the fore and has really been challenged by the fact that Samuel and I have redesigned and completely remodeled our kitchen so that we can both use it. And it's become increasingly clear how I don't really envision him or anyone else as part of my um, culinary experience. We were talking about a a dish with my mom and I said, you know, I made this. Samuel said, um, excuse me, (laughs) because we had both collaborated to make this meal. So I'm, I'm relearning. And one of the things that I've done is I've begun a list in the notes on my phone. I started doing this, um, last spring, um, when we kind of went into lockdown and I, started doing more cooking than usual because we weren't dining out. And I made a list of meals that we enjoy, Um, things that I've gone back to again and again. I just started by making a list of what they are. And I followed that with a shopping list of pretty much everything that I ever purchased at the supermarket so that I could click off what's needed for a particular trip to the store. This was really helpful because I was, you know, shopping. I was trying to shop for at least a two-week period, and I didn't want to be running in to get one thing. And I have since attempted to maintain uh, that policy, even though I'm shopping weekly again now, Um, there may be a time when I don't, and I'm trying to avoid just going into any place to just pick something up. Um, so having that list of meals and having the list of things that I purchase are very helpful. I also had the summer to think really carefully about what is my process in terms of getting meals on the table. Um, I tend to be more comfortable looking at what I have and thinking about what can be done with it than looking at recipes and listing all of the things I need to make them. Um, Because I think I'm always tempted maybe to make some purchases that I won't really use up everything or I don't see any other uses for that ingredient other than the recipe that I'm I'm about to make. And I, I really try, I push back against doing that. My whole life I've seen my mother open the cupboards, open the refrigerator, and particularly look at the produce uh, from 
her garden that was available and create a meal from that. And so that's how I think. I want to engage more with Samuel um, in terms of making our meals. And in order to do that, I need to be much more verbal and much more explicit with my thought process and my planning than I have been in the past, just kind of keeping everything in my head. So we have a practice of on Sunday afternoon, evening, we kind of talk about the week ahead, what we're doing, um, if we're going to dine somewhere else or get takeout, when that might be, and then what other meals we might be making. And I specifically ask Samuel for either a recipe or a meal idea that he has so I can make sure when I shop, which has been on Tuesday mornings before work, when I shop, I am purchasing things that we can have on hand to make those ideas a reality. Uh, and then I tend to fill in um, with some tried and true recipes, um, you know, some ways of using leftovers, that kind of thing. And that we are only at the very beginning. I mean, we've only really been doing this for two months since we finished the kitchen. And we are in a routine of, of teaching. Um, so I don't really have a lot of experience with this method. I do have a nice selection of cookbooks. And I don't turn to it very often. But they are handy now. And I have counter space to have a cookbook sitting on the counter and cook from it. Uh, which was very challenging in the past. I would often put my cookbook on the dining room table, open to the page because I didn't have any counter space in the kitchen. And then I would run out to consult it and run back into the kitchen. So that's a lot easier now. I've also taken to thumbing through cookbooks like on a Sunday morning with my coffee and thinking if there are some ideas in there I'd like to try. And if I want to remember something, I add it to that list in my phone. I tend not to use recipe cards, although I do have some of my mother's recipes on cards that my sister has provided for me. So I know I have them. I just haven't made incredible use of them yet. Um... And I also have some recipes listed from taproot issues that I love or I want to try. And those are in the list on my phone. So it's the beginnings of a process. Um, but I'm sure as you're listening, you can see that it's like a developing process and it's fraught with frustration because I have been used to operating very much in my head. It's only been about a year or so that I've thought about this topic at all. And there are two instances. I will try to link to at least one of them in the show notes, but I'm not sure about how to find the other one. It's been perhaps a year I heard Amy Beth, the fat squirrel, 
talk about this issue and talk about some lists that she made of meals. And I think she deals with a situation of her partner and her child have very different appetites and eating preferences than she does. And so these lists were kind of helping her keep everyone happy. I don't remember what episode that was, but if you do, I hope you'll let me know so I can link it in the show notes. Another podcast I listened to that I will find and link in the show notes is an episode of Spilled Milk in which the hosts, Matthew and Molly, talk specifically about meal planning. And they have two very different approaches. And I don't know if it's a difference in the sexes because Molly talks a lot about an internal process and just going with the flow of things. And Matthew is very explicit about what he does, how he gets input from his family members, how he shops, and the methods that he uses to plan, shop for, and make meals. And I was, even though that system is so foreign to me, I was fascinated by what he had to say on the topic. It would probably bear re-listening. I should probably go back to that when I find it and listen again now that I'm really putting some of those things into action in my kitchen. Um, But I will link to that because if this is something you're thinking about, I I think you would find that episode helpful. Or maybe it would just give you some options, some ideas. I would love to hear uh, listener feedback on this topic Um, I'd also like to know if you regularly team with someone else in your household in terms of getting meals on the table, Um, what that's like for you, if there have been any revelations along the way or any tips that you can pass along. And I want to thank Katrina for this question because it really did get me thinking and talking And I appreciate your interest. I want to tell you about two recipes we've tried this past week. We continue to cook with the apples we picked on our apple picking trip to Kerhonkson, New York. Sue from Ottawa, Canada, who is studio noodling on Ravelry, had sent me a message about a recipe for chicken normand. And she described how she cooks with it. So you you can see how, when I read this, you can see how my wheels started churning about how this could be a great recipe for my kitchen. Uh, She says, it's an old favorite. It's great when done per the recipe, but I usually play very fast and loose with it. Having it for two people, leaving out the peas, sometimes the parsnips, using leftover mashed potatoes, uh, and if I have them, mixing them with applesauce, homemade, or unsweetened store-bought. Nothing I've done has made it less than successful. It's always a pleasant and homey winter meal. I have never used the delicious apples, though, as I find them too mild. I usually have Macintosh or Cortland or even Granny Smith's in the fridge, and those have been fine. 
Chicken Normand. It is a chicken dish that has some similarities with a shepherd's pie because the meat is in the bottom, there's a sauce, and then there is mashed potatoes, mashed parsnips on the top, and you bake it. We love shepherd's pie at Yin Hu, so I thought this would be a great alternative. And the brandy cream sauce sounded really, really good. So we made this dish with um, boneless, skinless chicken thighs. I think I'd like to try it with ground turkey. I know it's like, talk about fast and loose. I'm already thinking about how to change the recipe. But we made it with, with the chicken. I replaced the peas with cut string beans because I made a bunch of gorgeous looking string beans and I had some left over in the refrigerator. So I just cut them into small pieces about the size of peas. Made the brandy cream sauce. And then I made the mashed potatoes and had the applesauce in two layers rather than mixed together. For the applesauce, I just cut up a few of the more tart of my apples into cubes and in my saute pan with a little bit of butter, I just let them cook down into a very unsophisticated applesauce. So we applied the applesauce and then the mashed potatoes, which had some additional cream sauce mixed in with them. Um, I did most of the prep of the vegetables. Samuel took care of the chicken and Samuel layered um, the baking dishes. I wasn't very specific about amounts when we made this, but uh, it was enough for an eight by eight pan that we enjoyed for dinner and a few leftovers, and then a smaller oval baking dish, which I put into the freezer. So not only did we have a meal, but we also have something that we can pull out again in the future, and that makes me extremely happy. I like the flavor of this dish. I adore the brandy cream sauce. I will be looking for more applications of a brandy cream sauce. And I think my only disappointment was the way it's sort of like shepherd's pie doesn't plate up very well. I mean, it's comfort food. One thing that I do sometimes with my shepherd's pies is I put them in ramekins and then you sort of preserve the look of it as you eat it as opposed to it kind of collapsing on a plate. It also keeps it warmer longer. And I like to eat a shepherd's pie that's really piping hot. So I think this will, this has gone on the list uh, on my phone. So I think this could be in regular rotation at Yin Hu. And Sue, I want to thank you for that recommendation. I will share a link to the Epicurious recipe for chicken Normand in the show notes. Another uh, recipe that I saw over the past couple weeks and I had been wanting to try was a very easy five-ingredient apple cake. This is on Food 52. I will link it. And it's, it's a recipe that's really about technique and not so much the ingredients. And I was keen to try it because 
we now have in our redesigned kitchen the KitchenAid mixer on a mount that folds away into a narrow cabinet next to the sink and comes up near the long countertop so that, number one, you don't have to haul the thing out and put it on the counter to use it, and it stores away very nicely. I haven't used it a ton, so I've been kind of looking for recipes where the mixer would come in handy. And this very easy apple cake begins with three eggs and a cup of brown sugar beat on high speed with the whisk attachment for about eight minutes, long enough for you to core and peel all of the apples that you're going to use in the dish. The other ingredients are flour and salt, and you bake it in a springform pan. It's moist and delicious. It's really not that much ingredient and Um, without the oil or the butter it's sort of like a lower fat alternative to a lot of cakes and we really enjoyed it I just topped it with powdered sugar I think having whipped cream with this would be absolutely decadent and wonderful it's easy and day three I ate a piece for breakfast and it's still pretty moist and nice so It keeps for a couple of days and some of those quick baking cakes don't, uh, they don't really hold their texture uh, that well. And this seems to do that. So I would highly recommend this for something quick that you can whip up and that lasts for, well, I guess it depends on who's in your household, how long it lasts. But uh, at our house, it lasted for a couple of days and All cakes, in my opinion, are sanctioned as appropriate breakfast food items, so it's great for after dinner, afternoon snack, and with a cup of tea or coffee for breakfast. Off the Shelf The Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation's Poetry Festival, which has been uh, put on every other year in New Jersey since 1986, is online, of course, this fall, and it's running for over a week. If you're listening when this episode comes out, there is still time to purchase tickets, and I think they have some that are like, pay what you want to pay to get into some of these events. If you're an educator, there are opportunities for students, and my understanding is that all of these readings and conversations that are happening online will be recorded and made available for later use. So it's it's an amazing, amazing resource that's being built, and even though, of course, it's lacking the energy of a live festival and High School Student Day, which has always just been a miraculous and powerful um, event that sort of restores one's faith in humanity. Um, I've been trying to kind of look at the bright side of this being available online. One thing, of course, is people from all over the world are participating. And another is the incredibly 
thoughtful questions that are being asked of the poets. I feel like when this process takes place live, there's a lot of like, where do you get your inspiration for writing poetry? And it kind of ends there and the questions aren't very powerful or penetrating in terms of the writer's experience. When these questions are put into a chat and people have time to compose and write the questions, um, and because I think, you know, of course, the people participating in a poetry festival are sort of literary, literary and language-oriented anyway, that's really their, their way to shine. The questions have been just amazing. It's, it's part of what I've been enjoying um, in the little snippets I've been able to dip into this festival as my schedule allows. On Monday morning, I'm trying to remember now. <laughs> I think it was Monday morning. It was like one of the first student um, events that was available there were three poets and a moderator, and one of the poets was Terry Ellen Cross Davis. I have never heard of Terry Ellen Cross Davis, and that's one of the beautiful things about this festival is you can be introduced to poets who are completely new to you. I was arrested by the things she had to say about poetry, and she read a poem that just started to catch in my mind as though I was starting to memorize it as she was reading it. And when the session was over, I was just Googling her and trying to find this poem and find out as much about her as I can. So I think what I will first do is read the poem, and then I'll talk a little bit about what excites me about Terry Ellen Cross Davis. The Goddess of Cleaning I bequeath you bleach, its singeing sting. I bequeath you the scrub brush, best done on hands and knees. I bequeath you ammonia for the exorcism of dirt. I bequeath you power over clutter, the washing machine spin, the dryer's lint grin. I bequeath you the salvation of sweeping, a consecrated grip on the broomstick. I bequeath you the dustpan's collection plate, the floor's sanctified echo, the trash bin's penitent face. I bequeath you the gospel of a mop, the sacred slosh of a rinse bucket's second coming. I bequeath you the torn t-shirt as rag, the two-sided sponge, vinegar, and the newspaper's squeak, the glass free of streak. I bequeath you an old toothbrush for tiles hard to reach grime. I bequeath you the grunt and scrub of wool, the eradication of rust. Trust in me, I baptize you in sweat, labor's beatific stain. I bequeath you the power to change one room at a time. That, oh, I just adore that poem. Having been working on this Women Who Run With the Wolves collection and thinking about goddesses and domestic power, um, issues concerning women and the domain of women. 
I, I just fell in love with this poem. I absolutely fell in love with it. And I will link to a video so you could see and hear Terry Ellen Cross Davis reading this poem. Uh, not the one, it wasn't at the festival I just saw. I don't think that's available yet, but it's another um, video clip that I found of her. So I will link that for you. With this poem, she does a couple of things that I really adore as an enthusiastic consumer uh, and sometimes a writer of poetry. She uses a device called anaphora, which I've talked about before in an episode titled Anaphora and Mohamara. Anaphora is that poetic technique of repeating um, or beginning lines with the same stem over and over. So she's bequeathing, bequeathing, bequeathing throughout this poem. And that is combined with her enjambment. So this is a technique that poets use where lines are broken um, and they don't end with the conclusion of a thought and they don't end with a rhyme, but rather they're broken. And so the effect is that often the poem is read much more rapidly, uh, almost breathlessly, because as soon as the poetic sentence ends, a new one starts and it's not at the end of a line. If you click and you see this poem written on the page, I think that will bring you to a very clear understanding about what I mean and why I've read the poem this way. Um, but she, these two things, this anaphora and this enjambment, in, in tandem with the uh, very fresh and rich images of domestic care, just make this an extraordinary poem, in my opinion. And then I find that her new book, uh, which is titled A More Perfect Union, and which unfortunately will not be out until February 2021, uh, has goddess poems sprinkled throughout. So this notion of there are these goddesses of things, and she writes these poems about them, is just incredible to me, and I can't wait to read them all. So I will um, I'll share a little bit with you this... Um, she is the winner, Terry Ellen Cross Davis is the winner of the Robert H. Um, Memorial Award for 2020. This is given by the Poetry Society of America, which is where I'm linking to, with this goddess of cleaning poem. And beneath the poem is uh, Ray Gonzalez writes about her and the collection. And I just want to read it to you because... I, I'm just in love with this poet right now, and I can't wait to read her book. These are stunning, vivid poems about self-discovery and how all poets use their voices to find universal truths. The author's perfect long stanzas work as magnets that close the distance between reader and writer. In The Goddess of Scars, the poet says, "'Consider my evolution a song to survival.'" Indeed, this sequence of poems builds on the breathless continuation of life after motherhood, on the dangers of identity politics, and the violent truths many cultures confront in today's America. 
One of the central poems in the sequence is Goddess of Blood, where pagan ritual encompasses pregnancy, birthing, menopause, and death. This cycle of love and sacrifice is also shown with the unexpected topic of being a cleaning woman. The goddess of cleaning emphasizes how manual labor and the strength of the poet will bequeath you power over clutter and the salvation of sweeping. These beautiful poems carve dynamic, timeless roles for women made fresh by visionary language. They contain a light drawn by many poetic forces working together. With the use of brilliant metaphors and unforgettable imagery, this poet unleashes the agony of experience as these poems take the reader through the eternal power of the womb. What makes this poetry come alive is the bare form of personal memory and confession that transforms the poems into bristling documents that prove what the great Chilean poet Pablo Neruda once wrote, poetry is power. Oh my goodness, I love her. I love Terry Ellen Cross Davis, and I can't wait to read more of her work. So I will link that in the show notes along with everything else I talked about, and I hope if you have um, even an inkling of interest in poetry, you will check this out because I think um, it seems to me she's a very powerful emerging voice in contemporary American poetry, and um She's one of the voices that will be making a difference, that are making a difference. And so forth. Well, the last time I recorded an episode, I talked a great deal about my disappointments with the Amy jumpsuit and the walnut dyeing that I had done that uh, created some very unsightly splotching and markings on the fabric. I thought a lot about it. I kind of bitched and moaned to my making friends about it, thought about some different fixes, including embroidery. And then I thought about the way I've handled other situations where things I made didn't turn out exactly the way I wanted. And my policy has been to unapologetically wear them. Unless there's something like inappropriate about it, I make things and I wear them. So Tuesday morning, came around, first day, back to school after the weekend, and I wore the jumpsuit. I wore it with leather boots and a jean jacket and a beautiful scarf. And by the time I got to my office, having made my way past the general office, down the hall, I had five compliments on what I was wearing. I think that what I was seeing when I looked at the garment and what you can see when you look at me wearing it are two very different things. First of all, I was hanging the jumpsuit in daylight and the entire thing was at eye level. So the splotches on the pant legs were right in front of my face and very obvious. However, when I wear it, no one those are not eye level. There's a lot of movement 
in the Amy jumpsuit because it's very full. It's also belted, which hides some imperfections. And the unfortunate staining kind of splotching on the very face of it were obscured by a necklace and a scarf. And it worked out great. And I've worn it four or five times since. I love the way the fabric moves. I love the brown color. It's so earthy and wonderful. It looks great with boots and a jacket. I like the adjustments I've made to the fit by making the neckline and the back a little bit less deep and also making the shoulder straps a little bit shorter so that it has a little better coverage and fit. And I have just been loving wearing my new Amy jumpsuit. And this is a design by Closet Core Patterns. It's my second iteration of the Amy jumpsuit. And I am making it without the side zip because I can pull it over. I'm making it with a um, synthetic uh, lining and pockets so that it slips on very easily. It doesn't have any additional bulk or weight. And I'm wearing it with every time with a very wide fabric belt. Highly recommend this pattern. And I may still do some embroidery over spots that are bothering me. But since my plans for wearing this during the colder seasons involve having a jacket or a sweater over it, I'm really not concerned about that now. The other thing that I've been working on is my Alabama Channon inspired endless summer tunic in organic soy knit fabric from the Confident Stitch in Montana. This is some of my very favorite fabric and certainly my very favorite knit fabric. Uh, my friend Sarah of the FiberTrack podcast was so kind to uh, spray a stenciled leaf design onto one layer of this fabric. And so I'm doubling it up. I'm using button thread to stitch around the motifs and then I'm cutting them out. I have finished the front of the dress and I started working on the back. I decided to leave one of the stenciled motifs right in the front uncut. I can always go back and cut it, but I just thought as a design feature, there's all this cutting out for negative applique, and I just thought it would be interesting to leave one of those sprays of leaves uncut to see what that was like. I don't think I mentioned this last time, but I'm using a technique that's sometimes called Alabama Channon fur, where the stitching thread begins and ends on the face of the fabric. So it's very traditional when you're doing any kind of stitching that knots go in the back on the wrong side or they are otherwise hidden in the design. And I have decided to just go all out and also leave the beginnings and ends of my threads visible on the front. 
I'm containing them all toward the center of the motif. So I kind of begin and end the stitching of each leaf along the invisible stem. Uh, and that makes it a little more ordered and a little less chaotic visually. Uh, nevertheless, there's all of that thread there. And I feel like that's, uh, I don't know, I feel it's, it's a celebration of the fact that this is hand stitched. And although that aesthetic did not initially appeal to me at all, I'm having fun with it. And I also think it has the added benefit of not, since you don't have any of that on the inside of the dress, that ultimately it will be a more comfortable garment since it's done that way. I'm still in my stitch trance every time I pick this up. And now I'm starting to work on the back. So the pieces I gave to Sarah um, were the back in two pieces and then there's a yoke and the yoke does not have any stenciling at all. It's just a double thickness yoke. So what I first needed to do was uh, sew and I used my machine and my over edge foot and black thread to sew the two halves of the back together with machine stitching. And then I pinned that piece over the single under layer. You use a lot, a lot, a lot of safety pins to keep everything in place and keep it from shifting. And then as I do my stitching, I remove the safety pins except the ones around the very outside of the pieces. And then after the back is done with the stitching and the cutting, then I will need to assemble the dress and put the binding around the neckline and the armholes. So it's progressing very nicely. I very much enjoy working on it. I initially purchased three spools of the button thread at Joann's in the slate color. It's kind of like a silvery blue gray, which I think works very well for the black on black and the pewter colored um, paint that Sarah applied. But I can tell that three spools will not be enough to get through all the stitching. So I need to stop in Joann's at some point and get another one, probably two spools of thread to complete the stitching on this. Having tons of fun with it and look forward to posting you on my progress. Well, thanks for tuning in everyone. It's so, I feel so fortunate uh, being able to continue making this podcast and providing you with some friendly conversation and some maybe some company uh, during your making. And I hope the upcoming days provide you with time to do the crafting you enjoy. Take care. Mm -hmm.